Let's open in prayer. Father God, this morning we ask that you would break open our minds and our hearts, stop us from thinking about so many other things than your word today. Help us to be mindful of the severity of text and the fact that it speaks to us specifically and helps us to grow and helps us to mature to know you better. Give us true eyes to see and ears to hear your word this morning, both now and in the service. God, help us to grow. Keep us on the path as we as you've been so clear to explain that you are the light ahead of us. Keep us fixed on you. And again, we love you so much and so thankful for your care and concern for us each day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I kind of, as I said last week, I was kind of going backwards because I had no idea I was going to be doing a series, but we talked about the sovereignty of God. And that's what we're building on, and the fact that that is a critical issue for each and every one of us to understand and fully grasp that God is sovereign. He is in control over everything. Even though around us everything seems to be out of control, He's in control. And that's who we rely on. So when you start finding yourself spinning, it's probably the reality. You're not looking at Him and trusting Him. You're trying to trust yourself. And again, too, kind of bringing back into mind, I don't remember how far back we went, but we talked about Paul and his situation in the book of Acts. Being on the ship as he's being transported to Rome, and again, with the mindset of the sovereignty of God, you understand that when they're on that ship and the storm hits them and it's been going on for days and the sailors are convinced that they're going to die and this thing is going to be horrific. You have to realize, too, they've had no stars, they've had no sun, they've had no direction, they have no idea where they are. And again, you ask yourself the question, how many times in my own life have I been in that same situation? Not necessarily on a ship, but my life. What did you do? Well, Paul went to God and spoke with God that night, and God told him that the ship, yes, it's going to be destroyed, but not one single life is going to be lost. And Paul explains to everybody on the ship, the Creator God, the Sovereign God, is in control. Trust Him. So this morning we're actually going to be landing on John chapter 6. So if you get a chance to turn there, we're going to bounce between, again, John 6, but we'll be in Matthew and Mark. So we're not going to go too far out of your uh, Bible comfort zone, I guess. I don't know. So thinking back, it's kind of interesting. It was scary growing up with my mother. That's all I could say. <laughs> No matter what I did to hide or cover up something, she knew about it. Every once in a while she said she had eyes in the back of her head. Now, I was always looking for those things whenever she did something. I was trying to see if she really did have eyes in the back of her head. But no matter what I did, Mom knew about it. <laughs> I was like, ah. So today we're going to be in John chapter 6, and I'm going to try to work through and set the stage of what's occurring with the apostles and how this ties into the sovereignty of God. And we're going to be picking up one of the biggest pieces, the omniscience of God. 
is all-knowing. God knows everything before we do. He knows where we are and what's happening. So at the end of this great event we're going to study, we're going to see what these men have learned, and I hope we will gain that same knowledge. We'll be able to go back to a living event and tie it back to ourselves and say, when I hit this kind of a situation in my life, I can trust the Word, I can trust God, because I saw the men of God struggle and trust Him. The hard part about, for me, starting in the middle of John is you're kind of missing the context, aren't you? It's like where we are, what's happened, what's occurred, what's been going on. And I think so many times today, we just resolve to a quick read, right? Oh, we're in John 6, so I'm not going to worry about anything else around it. I've never been a fan for that. It's like taking everything out of context. I love the people that say, oh, I read this great book. Well, what's about it? I don't know. I just read the last chapter. Why? Because they just want to get to the end real fast, right? They don't want to take the time to go through it. So let's put it this way. In all reality, I'm a very strong fan of the books and now the movie of J.R. Tolkien. I love The Hobbit. I grew up as a little guy with The Hobbit and had Gollum in my head. And then they came out with some weird cartoon movie of it and destroyed my image of Gollum. And not until Peter Jackson came back and redid the movie, I went, there he is. I saw him. So as I sometimes probe deeper why some people don't like The Hobbit, a lot of times it boils right down to the fact is they don't like how long it takes to set up all the characters. Now, if I'm talking to you, I'm sorry about that, but here's the hard reality with that book. Right at the very beginning, you're met with whom? You're met with 13 dwarves. You know everything about them, right? Okay, let's see. Let's just test. Can you name them all? If you can, we're going to chat later, right? Can you name them all? All 13 that you got to develop the character of each one of these individuals. Well, you got Bofur, you got Biffer, you got Balin, you got Dwalin, you got Philly, Killy, Glowin, Owen, Nori, Ori, Dory, Bumbar, and Thorin. Did you get all of those? Remember all those? No. You know, it takes time to develop the elements in a story, and it takes time to understand what's going on. And that's really what we're going to have to look at today, because it's going to take time to understand what's really happening around chapter 6. Remember, we are removed by both time, culture, language, and geography. Time, we're in thousands of years since the event. We were never there, and we need to understand what happened to grasp the full reality of it. You also, because we're so far in the time period, we also have to work, try to understand, here's a big word for you, we have to understand the authorial intent of the author himself. What is their target? What are they trying to communicate? Interesting, too, is you ever known that there are different themes for the gospel writers? They target things very specific. Each gospel writer is focused and intent on their writing. Specifically, Matthew is focused on the Messiah. As he brings the king of the Jews, he brings that up in Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Mark focuses on the suffering servant. We get that out of Mark 6, 30 through 44. 
Luke focuses on John's compassion in Luke 9.10, and John's focus is on the person and work of Christ. So you see, they're going to be focused on specific things. You wonder, well, why don't all the gospel writers talk about the exact same thing? It's based on the focus. That's why some things are not in all the text. So let's turn to John 6.1, and we start the text by just saying, and after this, Jesus went away to the other side, the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, or Lake Tiberias, sometimes you see that. So where are we, and what time is it? Believe it or not, we've got a pretty large gap between chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's a huge time gap, and some sometimes can be anywhere from 6 months to 12 months. So there's lots going on between those two chapters. Again, John's focus is on the person and work of Christ. He's very specific, so he's not going to include everything. You notice, too, in John 5, 1, if you go back one chapter, he says, after this, notice the comparison between 6, 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The feast. <laughs> yeah, that helps. John did not identify the feast of the Jews. We don't know if it's Passover, or we don't know if it's the feast of the booths or the feast of the tabernacles. We don't know which one. So we don't know if it's six months or 12 months. If John is referring to the Feast of the Booths, we're looking at six months. If he's talking about the Passover, which is what he now defined, we're talking about a 12-month span. Well, let's see. Has Jesus been sitting around doing nothing for six or 12 months? Not really. All right, strap on. This takes a little bit of work. What's happened in the gap? Well, let's see. The disciples pick grain on the Sabbath. Man's hand is healed in the Sabbath. Many follow Jesus to be healed. Jesus prays on a mountain. Jesus selects 12 disciples. Jesus heals the multitude, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus heals the centurion's servant. Widow of Nain's son is raised. The Baptist, John, sends two disciples to question Jesus. Jesus dines with Simon, the Pharisee. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. The sign of Jonah. Parables by the sea. Jesus calms the stormy sea on the Sea of Galilee. Legion cast out of the violent man. Jairus asked Jesus to heal his daughter. Ill woman is healed by touching Jesus. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter to life. Jesus heals two blind men. Jesus heals a mute demoniac. Twelve sent out to preach. Death of John the Baptist. And Herod fears John the Baptist has risen. Has it been a boring six or twelve months? No. All right, Jesus' desire for himself and his men at this point in the text is to get a break from ministry, to get away, to commune with the Father, spend some time away of refreshment and renewal. They've had nothing but constant ministry. Now take a look. Pop back to Mark 6, verse 30. And in the text it says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught, and he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. That's constant ministry. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. I find it hard sometimes when you, and this is like a rabbit trail, Yet you find some pastors that complain about how hard the work is. I don't think it's ever gotten to this point where it's been so busy they haven't had time to eat. That's amazing. 
That's dedicated ministry. Now they depart to Capernaum, from Capernaum to Bethsaida on Lake Tiberias, or the other name of the Sea of Galilee. Okay, Verse 2, chapter 6. A large crowd was following him because they were observing the miraculous signs he was performing on the sick. Now we've already noted that we've got a 6 to 12 month delay in timing. And Jesus performed many miracles and signs. When they get to the other shore, the crowds were there waiting. Talk about a place to get a break, right? Matthew 14, 14 says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus teaches and heals the sick in the crowd. No stop for ministry. No time off. Do you see something personal about Jesus in this text? The whole point of going all the way across the lake to Bethsaida was for a time of refreshment. Have they had it yet? No. Is he complaining? No. He's ministering to us. The people. You're never ever going to find God a little bit tired and going, really? Can you give me a break here? No, never. God is always compassionate and caring all the time. He's not on vacation. He's not taken out. All right, let's take the big text. Starting in verse 3, chapter 6, get the whole context. So Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Jewish feast of the Passover was near. Okay, so this is that 12-month marker possibly. Then Jesus went when he looked up and saw the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, notice Philip is our first subject here, where can we buy bread so that these people may eat? Now notice his reply. Again, get into the context. Now Jesus said this is to test him, for he knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, hmm, let's see, 200 silver coins worth of bread would not be enough for them, for each one to get a little Notice all these words that are being used. One of Jesus' disciples, Andrew Simon Peter, we know him. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Here is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good are these for so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now that was an interesting reply, wouldn't it be? You're like, Okay. Let's see, we're looking at a lot of coins, not enough bread, have a little. Two loaves, fish. There's no solution here. But have the people sit down, ready for dinner, ready to eat. And the guys are going, I have no idea what's going on. Again, we notice these men and their response. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Of course, you have to multiply that probably by three, so you're talking about fifteen to 20,000 people, okay? Man count is just, but you're talking about women and children and families being there. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed the bread to those who were seated. He then did the same with the fish, and as much as they wanted. Not a little, not just fish and two bread, as much as they wanted. When they were all satisfied, I love these words that are popping out, Jesus said to his disciples, 
gather up the broken pieces that were left over so that nothing is wasted. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with broken pieces from the five barley loaves left over by the people who had eaten. Notice, Philip is pressed with a test. It even says in the text that Jesus is testing him. Philip, what would you do in this situation if you were me? Well, I don't know. Let me see how much money we got. Even the fact, too, you're talking about a city that probably wouldn't be able to feed this many people or at least be able to produce this much bread. It's not like a grocery store you have thousands of loaves of bread. So the possibility is extremely limited. But he does try to do the calculation. But what's the problem with Andrew and Philip both? They try to do this on a human effort. Remember? The Creator God is standing next to him asking the question, and they're trying to calculate this on a human effort. How many times do you and I do that? We have the Holy Spirit in our life. We have Jesus Christ who has paid for our sins, and he is absolutely there to minister to us, and we're out there going trying to figure out how we can deal with this situation on our own. That's scary. Jesus is the only one who can solve the issue. There are so many people and so little food. And again, he asks these men, and their natural response is a physical response. I don't know. Let me figure out how I can go into town. I don't know. I got this kid. Now, I love, you have to agree, I love Andrew. Andrew's a little bit further down the road. He's not all the way. I mean, he, he bumps and drops and falls in pits all over the place. But I love the fact he finds at least something a little bit different, and he finds this kid that's got food. But he brings them to Jesus and goes, this is the only food we got in the area. Um, I don't think this is going to work. Again, he gets a little bit further. I love this statement. Do you have faith that God can meet your needs? When I have little faith, it means I am independent of God and I'm trying to solve things on my own. Ooh. When I have faith, it means I am dependent on God. Has that ever hit your thoughts? What's the difference between someone who has faith and someone who does not have faith? Someone who has faith says, I am absolutely dependent on God. I'm not looking anywhere else. We are too confident in ourselves. The other gospel writers detail the feeding Miracle. Miracles are God's and not man's. So the crowd is fed, and I love this, to the max. Does God do things just kind of tiny, just barely enough? Uh-uh. What is the cup filled up and flowing over? God provides for our needs in abundance. So many times we forget that. Well, if I only, really, take a look. You're probably in the abundant level. You don't need that much. After the crowd was full, Jesus asked his disciples to collect. Now, there's a lot of speculation on why the count was 12. Of course, that's the number of disciples you have. Boiling it down in the way I always look at it very simply is this is a large message for these men. Two of them are trying to handle it and resolve it physically, physiologically themselves. 
And it's a hard message back to them going, this is the miracle, this is God, this is the provisioning God that gives us what we need to the abundance. And I want you guys to understand, you're holding a basket with the excess. Now the next time you're asked the question, what do we do to feed these people, don't give me the mathematical calculation of what it's going to be to buy a bunch of bread. Or sit and kind of go, I don't know, i got this kid over here that's got food, what are we going to do? You're going to trust me. You're going to come to me. You're going to rely on me. You're going to be dependent on me. Again, the lesson to us continually is God cares. And he meets our needs. So this morning, let's start breaking it down. Now let's start taking a look. And that was the background story. But this is, now we're going to look at something we studied last week, the omniscient God. God knows everything. So let's move to John 6.16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, got into a boat, and started across the lake to Capernaum, back over to headquarters. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The disciples are now in a boat going back to the office, you might say. Turn over to Matthew 14. Verse 22, this gives you a little bit more context of what's going on. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dispersed the crowds. And after he set the crowds away, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Where were the disciples? Boat, lake, middle. Maybe. Meanwhile, the boat, already far from land, was taking a beating from the waves because the wind was against it. John records in John 6.18, sorry, I'm bouncing back and forth, by now a strong wind was blowing and the sea was getting rough. They're back on the lake and encountering another storm. They've already dealt with this storm before, Sudden storms come up on this lake. They were convinced the last time that they were going to die, and Jesus was in the boats asleep. Remember? And they are irritated with him and his lack of care. They wake him up, frustrated. He gets up, calms the sea back down to a glass surface, and they go... Who is he that the winds and wave obey? Come on, guys. Let's grow up here. Interesting thing when you study this lake, and it is kind of interesting going, why in the world does this thing come up with sudden storms? Such storms result from differences in temperatures between the seacoast and the mountain. If you ever look at the geological structure, you've got a lake, shallow, and you've got a mountain structure up towards Capernaum. <clears throat> The Sea of Galilee lies 680 feet below sea level. It is bound by hills, especially on the east side where they reach 2,000 feet high. Now you understand the convection of heat and all that good things you learn in, remember, high school biology and all that. These heights are a source of cool, dry air. In contrast, directly around the sea, the climate is semi-tropical with warm, moist air. I think we understand what that is, right? 
The large difference in height between the surrounding land and the sea causes large temperature and pressure changes as a result of strong winds dropping to the sea, funneling through the hills. The Sea of Galilee is small. These winds may descend directly to the center of the lake with violent results when the contrasting air masses meet. A storm can arise quickly and without warning. Small boats caught out on the sea are in immediate danger. The Sea of Galilee is relatively shallow. Notice, just 200 feet. Basically, the shallow lake gets whipped up with the wind and rapidly with the thin depth of the water where energy is more readily absorbed, so there's not enough depth in the water to take up this energy that suddenly hits. What happens? You get these massive storms. And they come up now. And the fact that you get these winds, it makes a lot of sense. So these guys are rowing all night, going nowhere. What about you? When's the last time you rode all night and got nowhere? Do you start thinking, where's God? Does he understand what's going on in my life? It's, it, I, I'm hitting these walls. Where is he? Is he taking a break? Taking a snooze, a nap, maybe on vacation? You know, sometimes when you get to the end of the edge of the disaster, you feel like he's not there. That's the largest mistake we've got. Go to Mark 6. I love Mark's account. Mark 6, verse 47 or 48, he says, When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and who? Jesus, he, was alone on the land. So in the middle of the lake, and Jesus is still way away. Notice this last statement. He, Jesus, seeing them straining at the oars, the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, that's 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea and he intended to pass by them. That speaks volumes to me. Remember, it's at night. They're rowing hard against the wind. They're not getting anywhere. They are dead center doing nothing, working hard at it. Jesus is way off in the distance, and he's not got a binocular to be able to see anything. And the text says, seeing them rowing hard. Does that not reverberate in your mind? Again, when you start getting to the point where you think that Jesus is not aware of the situation, the hardship that you're going through, you go back to this text and say, no, seeing them, he knew. And what I think is most amazing, there's not a lot of depth in the context, but you notice what? Jesus meets them where they are in the midst of the wind and the storm. He comes to them. What a comfort for our hearts. Jesus knew what they were going through. It wasn't a mystery. He didn't need to be woken up. He didn't need to be off vacation. But you and I spend so much of our time in kind of paranoia, thinking that in the midst of the disaster that we're in, he is not aware of it. 
He is not like you or I. He does not need to be physically present to see or communicate to us and to understand what's going on. He knows before we know. This is hard text to live out because we're our attitude so many times is what? He's given up on me. What's going on? And we start getting paranoid. Oh, in our Christian realm, we don't use those terms. We ask people to pray for us, but so many times people should be praying for us to trust Him because He knows. And He will guide us through and He will meet us at our need. We may feel that Jesus is not aware of our current situation, but Mark keeps this clear that Jesus knows. Back to John 6. Let's keep going. John 6, 19. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, that's not a lot, okay? They caught sight of Jesus walking on the lake, approaching the boat, and they were frightened. Well, what else would you think? What if you're on the, and everything's, and it's at night, and... Some guys on the water walking towards you. How many times do you see this day in, day out? Zero, okay? So I understand the response. But he said to them, and I love this, again, wrap these words in your thinking. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately, okay, Mind's eye, be there. And immediately the boat came to land where they had been heading. Jesus is with them. They see Jesus and immediately are afraid. I got that, okay? Ghost kind of thing would freak me out. This is not a normal operation. They're terrified. But again, notice the statement. Jesus says, I am here. Be not afraid. And again, when you're hit to the wall with something of a disaster in your own life and what's going on, the pressure, and you don't understand, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and look at him, and he will constantly reply, I am here. Be not afraid. Get the eyes off of you and onto Jesus. And again, they see that he is the sovereign God, the creator. For when he got into the boat, the wind stopped. And they're, these guys have been working all night on their own personal effort, right? And they've gotten nowhere. And they're with Jesus, and now where are they? Dry land. Do you get an idea that this is a text that speaks specifically to us and the fact of the issues and the hard times in our life, instead of complaining about it, you go to Jesus and trust him? Be not afraid. I am here. He met the men where they were. Yeah, it freaked them out a little bit. But he cares for us. He's omniscient. He knows where we are and he knows what we're going through. These men continually, but you start seeing them growing more and more. They struggle to see that Jesus is the sovereign, all-powerful God, and they could not connect the miracle from the afternoon, the supernatural miracle, 
of feeding the multitude and the supernatural power of Jesus over the wind and the waves. They're growing. They're struggling. You might be growing. You might be at that point in your life where you're still growing to apply who Jesus is and to trust him fully. Now, I hope this has not been going on for lots of years because you need to get off the milk and get onto the meat. Stop thinking about yourself and your problems and your woes and start thinking absolutely about Jesus and trusting Him. No matter how dark it gets, He is there. And He meets you where you are. That's an omniscient God that loves us. Do we see Jesus for all that he is? Now again, if you really want an interesting study of your own you know, time, study the Gospels, a little bit of Acts, but go through and start taking a look at these 12 guys. And after a while you drop off Judas and you understand, but start studying the 12. How do they look? Fully trusting Jesus? Now they're a mess. They have got no clue what they're doing. They're stumbling, they're falling over. Peter opens his mouth and you're like, Oh, Peter, really? Yeah, dude, shh, quiet. And he just, but he's overt, right? You know exactly where Peter's at. No matter what the issues are, these guys are just a mess. And you and I go, why did he pick these guys? These are... I mean, really? Wait a minute. Don't they emulate an awful lot of who we are? You look at them and you go, ah, but stop. Look at them and go, ah, he's a lot like me. But then go into the Gospels, go into their writings, go into where they've gone past, go past Acts and study these men. What are they? Who do they trust? Steve's been giving us the reality of what's going on in Acts and the fact that they're standing before the Sanhedrin. There's a threat of death. And how's Peter responding? Oh, what do I do? I don't know if Jesus is aware that I'm even in court. No, he's fully aware. And what's the boldness of Peter now? Where before he was a timid guy and denied Jesus, what's he now? He's a grown-up individual, still growing. Don't suddenly think Peter's grabbed it all, because there's a lot of mistakes Peter does throughout. As you read through the book of Acts, you're going, oh, Peter. Well, get a little bit further and you start understanding he's growing up. But does he trust Jesus? Does he trust him absolutely when he's in the court? Absolutely. Does he rely on himself? Not in the least. Again, we went back and saw Paul completely trust God on a boat that's absolutely going to be destroyed. Unwaveringly. Do we see Jesus as a sovereign creator God ourselves? Do we trust him? Even when we can't see anything else around us? Do we see him as having the power over all things? That's key. Do you see him as the all-powerful God that you can absolutely trust, rely on? Or do you see him as the limp God that can't do anything? Do we see him as having full knowledge and is fully aware of all that is going on in our lives? 
See, these are critical issues in your own personal life and your relationship with God. Do you see God as a sovereign God? And do we go to him for all things? We struggle. But this is who we need to be face to face with. You might say he's the sovereign God, but do you live the life out that he is sovereign? That he is all-powerful? He's all-knowing. And he cares for us. Examine your life today. And see. Do you trust him as the sovereign God? Do you know him as the sovereign God? Let me ask you this, even with our age group. Go with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians where he says, examine yourself to see whether or not you be in the faith. If you keep hitting walls and can't trust God, my first question to you is, do you know him personally as your Savior? Not analytically in your mind, but does he have a huge place in your heart, in your life, that he's, he's taken over and you trust him? You might even be at the point where you've kind of played Christian for so long it's gotten numb. You don't have a vibrant love for Jesus. Again, my question would be to spend time with him, go to him, do a deep examination of your life and trust him and rely on him for everything. It's hard. It's a hard life. And you've notice the apostles struggled. So as you're in the path of struggling, aiming towards trusting him, that's a great thing. Now, let's keep moving, okay? If you're 30 years as a Christian and you're still at ground zero, get in the Word, study the Word, dig in the Word, and trust Him. Put your face in Jesus' face and say, You alone, O oh God. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy so many times for us to sit there and say that we trust you as a sovereign God, but so many times our actions in our life are way far from the truth, the reality there, because we are worried, we're concerned, we're fretting. We're, we just don't think you understand or care. How can we say in one phrase that you're the sovereign God, the other side we're actually turning around in our life saying that you're unaware and uncaring? That's a non-reality. Help us to look at the text. Help us to see the reality that Jesus knows where we are. Help us to see what's going on with the men on the lake as they were struggling in John 6. They had just seen the miracle, were given pure heart evidence that the miracle of feeding the multitude was there even to the maximum and the utmost with 12 baskets in their hands. And yet they struggled. Now, we're faced, our own lives, with what do we do with the truth and the reality of the text? Do we know that Jesus is far away, yet he's fully aware of every detail of what's going on, as he was with the men in the boat? Help us to learn to trust you more each day. To move from the reality of saying that you're sovereign to actually living a life that you are truly sovereign and it comes out in what we do in our response. Show us the weakness of our hearts. Grow us with the word and the depth of the text. 
and encourage us to continually rely and trust in you more each day. This is the God that we love. We do love you, and we know you care for us. Grow us to know you more each day. In Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.